Catherine Amir Farr. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law Behind, Behind the Headlines. Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Joining me for today's episode is Tess Bridgman, Senior Editor for the well-known Just Security blog and Senior Fellow at the Reese Center on Law and Security at NYU Law School, who rounds out her little free time by serving as a lecturer at both Stanford University and Berkeley Law. Previously, Tess served at the White House in the Obama administration as Special Assistant to the President and Deputy Legal Advisor for the National Security Council, and before that in the Legal Advisor's Office at the State Department. Tess, thanks for joining. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, I think a common theme among the remarkable array of senior government positions you've held is international law and policy. And now, Tess, many of our listeners are already experts in the field, but especially for those who are not and for those who are but may feel that times are changing, let's start basic. Does international law matter to U.S. policymaking at the highest levels? If so, and I suspect you think it does, how in your experience is it incorporated? It's a great question and unfortunately a timely one because it should go without saying that uh, international law matters tremendously in foreign relations, in, in dealing with relations among states, upholding the obligations that we owe to one another is simply fundamental. Adherence to the rule of law is what creates the trust that states need to interact with each other on the international plane. It's, it's a basic concept of, of reciprocity in our international relations that really drives all of what we do in our foreign policy. It allows for multilateral cooperation. It also allows us to band together and impose consequences when states don't adhere to their obligations. And if we have a lack of trust that we are not willing to uphold the obligations we owe to one another, the international policymaking process can break down in fundamental ways. I do fear that we're seeing some signs of that with a lack of trust that the current administration will uphold its international obligations, in particular by doing things like withdrawing from treaties that previous administrations have entered into, which is something that most U.S. administrations have not done, even if there is a significant change in policy views when a new president takes office. So Tess, how is international law actually incorporated into decision-making? It's easy, I think, in concept to understand, but how does it work in practice in your experience, both from a White House perspective and a state perspective? Sure. Well, as as many of our listeners likely know, uh, department and agency lawyers in the executive branch work with their policy counterparts on a day-to-day basis, uh, solving all sorts of problems and, and looking at international legal issues as they're developing and implementing foreign policy. Uh, this was absolutely the case at the State Department and also the case at the National Security Council, where we similarly advise White House leadership and National Security Council staff in the day-to-day. And that can mean, um, that can mean many things throughout the course of the policymaking process. And in my experience, our policy counterparts were generally quite receptive to the, the legal advice offered uh, by, their, by their counterparts in the legal offices of departments and agencies as well as at the NSC. And that can start with simply talking over legal issues with clients as they're thinking through policy options. Uh, it leads to working together on preparing more formalized policy options that might be considered in the National Security Council decision-making process, uh, and, of course, when decisions are going to the president, ultimately. 
It also means being in the room during NSC meetings that are convened for senior policymakers to deliberate on policy options. And the, the kinds of things that, that senior policymakers might want to know are, can we make a strong legal argument? And, and of course, that's, that goes without saying that an argument has to be advanced in good faith. But they also want to know things like, would we be pushing the legal boundaries in a way that could result in losing cooperation on an issue? Uh, or more broadly, would we, would we risk weakening adherence to the rule of law? That's, of course, not a line we want to cross. So, Tess, let me ask, is it a matter of international law bearing on the types of decisions that you just went through because it's already incorporated into U.S. law? Or is there life international law independently, or does it depend on the administration? How, how does that get sorted out? Sure, I think that will both depend on the issue as well as perhaps to some extent the administration, but department and agency lawyers and NSC lawyers have generally looked at domestic and international law issues uh, as two inquiries that each have to be satisfied when looking at policy options. So I think uh, use of force may be one of the best examples of this if the, uh, if the president is contemplating introducing U.S. armed forces or uh, conducting a, a certain type of operation abroad, we'll look at both whether there is a domestic international legal basis for that action, whether it be congressional authorization or uh, a, a constitutional power that the, that the president has, but we'll also then look at whether there is an international legal basis for that option. And we would have to independently satisfy ourselves of the second question, regardless of whether there is an affirmative answer on the first. That is to say, even if there is a domestic legal basis for proceeding, we would always ask, is there an international legal basis? Is it a strong one? Will our, our partners and important inter international institutions share our views sufficiently that we'll get cooperation uh, if that is needed in, in the type of operation at issue? So certainly international law does have uh, independent salience uh, for department and agency lawyers and for, for White House lawyers. Beyond the use of force, the international law docket, though, is, a, is of course a a big one, and it includes everything from treaty interpretation on every functional area you can think of uh, to dealing with the law of the sea in issues uh, relating, for example, to what, what's going on in the South China Sea is, is an important one now. Uh, it involves uh, addressing the law of occupation when you have, uh, for example, Russia showing up in Ukraine. It involves interpreting international human rights law and international criminal law when situations are referred to the International Criminal Court, uh, on down to diplomatic law, consular relations. So the, the number of international law issues that arise uh, is large, and there's a, a fairly steady docket of international law issues being considered uh, all the time. It certainly is a, a broad array. So let me ask you this. You know, it doesn't take an expert to appreciate that the Trump administration's approach to decision-making around international law differs markedly from that of the Obama administration. But many may not appreciate what that actually means for international law, true believers or skeptics alike, in terms of our everyday lives, whether you live in America or not. So what are we seeing now in terms of the current state of U.S. national security, foreign policy decision-making, and what do you think we can expect in terms of the future? It's a good question, and I think there may be more than one answer, depending on the issues we're talking about. I think there, there are a large number of policy areas 
where the the work of the executive branch has continued apace relatively consistently across administrations. And you have both executive branch lawyers and policymakers continuing to do their jobs, continuing to take domestic and international law into account uh, as they engage on the international plane. But apart from those issues, we of course have several glaring examples of instances where either international law has been ignored or where the president and other senior administration officials have shown disdain for international law in the policymaking process. Uh, one, of course, key example of an area where international law has been ignored is in the, the Trump administration's decisions to use force against the Assad regime in Syria. Uh, while there was quite a lot of uh, interest on the, on the part of the public and Congress, the administration declined to provide uh, a rationale uh, for why that use of force was permissible under international law. That glaring omission is something that uh, I think we should take seriously and, and risks eroding uh, adherence to the rule of law in a really important area, the use of force. Now, you've just said that the Trump administration declined to uh, explain the legal framework behind uh, its military intervention in Syria. Now, you've written extensively yourself on what that legal framework for justifying U.S. military intervention looks like in Syria. Is it your sense that there is a justification that, that really is consistent with international law that the Trump administration could have asserted? in that context or that there really is no justification and what their silence conveys is that it's illegal as a matter of international law. I think it's the latter, that there is really no international law justification for the uses of force the Trump administration has engaged in against the Assad regime, separating out, of course, the counter-ISIL campaign, which we can also touch on. Um, you know, I think it's it's fairly well understood, and both the Obama and Trump administrations, as, as well as administrations before those, have acknowledged that the, the bedrock of the international system really is the prohibition on the use of force in interstate relations. There are very few exceptions to that. Uh, one of them, of course, being UN Security Council authorization, the second and, and one that's, that's used the most frequently uh, being a valid invocation of self-defense. And then, of course, a state can consent to a use of force on its territory uh, against non-state actors if there's a valid underlying rationale. Uh, in this, in the Syria example, not only were none of these three exceptions uh, present, uh, but we also didn't see an invocation of humanitarian intervention as a legal rationale. And that may be because the Trump administration, like the Obama administration before it, has not concluded uh, that there is, in fact, a customary international law norm of humanitarian intervention that allows for the use of force when there is no other legal justification. Uh, so I think the silence, in fact, does speak to the lack of a legal justification. And assuming that's the case, Tess, that there is a lack of, of legal justification for the United States' use of force in Syria, what implication does that have in your mind for the larger international order, the international rule of law? Sure. Well, I think that's, that's a, a question that has been debated well before the Trump administration. I think there's, there's often been... Uh, you, you know, a, when a use of force uh, occurs in a legal gray zone of sorts, uh, there's always debate about whether the use ad bellum is being eroded 
uh, whether the norms that we have relied upon to structure the international system are in fact losing purchase over time. So in a sense, uh, the debate isn't new. Uh, but on the other hand, I think it, it is relatively alarming uh, that the Trump administration did not try to offer a rationale uh, and that the Trump administration repeated this practice on more than one occasion, um, also without achieving their desired policy aims, I would, I would add. Uh, so, so the growing comfort uh, of, uh, of the Trump administration uh, with using force in a manner uh, that is not justified under international law, I think really does risk eroding these norms that are the bedrock of the international system uh, in a way that, that is to some degree new, even though this debate in other ways is age old. So to take an example or another example of a significant foreign policy issue related to Syria that's on a lot of people's minds, President Trump, as you know, ordered the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Syria in December in what seemed to be an abrupt shift in policy, but frankly remains unclear in light of recent statements by John Bolton as to what it actually means in terms of U.S. troops on the ground. Now, what was your reaction, not only in terms of the decision itself, but also in terms of what you can glean about the process behind that decision? Yeah, there's, there's been a lot of speculation about what process there may have been, if any, and I, I have no inside knowledge at the moment, but based on the, the resignation of Defense Secretary Mattis, the fact that our allies were caught by surprise, and certainly a number of our uh, our officials uh, operating in the Middle East also seem to have been caught by surprise. I think we can fairly conclusively say there at least was not a sufficient process. Uh, you know, a, a process is, of course, not just for vetting a decision, ensuring uh, that it's a wise policy option that that um, all the relevant considerations have been taken into account. It's also uh, uh, having a, a policy process is also incredibly important in ensuring that those who are charged with implementing the process understand what decision has been taken and are able to work with allies and partners as well as simply, uh, you know, run our institutions of government in a manner that's going to achieve the policy goals that have been set out. That clearly wasn't done in this case. Uh, now that we're seeing um, the walk back uh, from Bolton and perhaps others, it's unclear uh, whether that, that policy goal that President Trump announced will ever be achieved. I do think the process question, though, can be separated to some extent from the wisdom of the ultimate decision. Uh, while it's, it's fairly clear that it may have been ill-considered and certainly its implementation remains to be seen, uh, I think we've, we've long known that a long-term U.S ground presence in Syria is untenable as a policy and as a legal matter. Uh, and I think something that this decision and the reaction to it has brought to the fore is this question that's been lingering for some time now of, are we still on strong legal footing in Syria, even as to the counter ISIL campaign? And as I think some of our listeners are, are likely already well aware, we've been on relatively thin ice on that question for some time. Uh, of course, lacking consent of the Syrian government and without UN Security Council authorization, we've been relying on a, a strand of the theory of self-defense for our actions in Syria, known as the unable or unwilling theory, 
the Obama administration was very was very public and and made clear its legal rationale for the use of force against ISIL in Syria. Uh, the the United States invoked both national and collective self defense on behalf of Iraq and and other states uh, to use force against ISIL. And while Iraq not only offered uh, its consent but invited the U.S. to help it. Uh, counter ISIL in Syria, of course, without consent, uh, the United States concluded that because Syria was either unable or unwilling to address the threat ISIL posed, it was necessary in our invocation of self-defense to use force against ISIL in Syria nonetheless. Uh, the, the question remains, though, how long does that rationale last and what are the contours of, of this unable or unwilling theory of self-defense as we look at the Syria context? Uh, it's, it's, of course, a messy battle space where we have a lot of actors involved. Some of these actors, other than the U.S., are also engaged in fighting ISIL to different degrees. So the issue of whether the United States' ground presence in Syria uh, can continue after the threat from ISIL begins to diminish, even before that threat is, is completely gone, I think has been a live issue for some time, even before Trump's announcement, and is one that, that merits looking at closely, irrespective of how you feel about the policy issue of whether the United States should have a presence in Syria. So let me turn to another hot topic very much in the headlines uh, that you touched on earlier. U.S. withdrawal from various treaties. So, for example, the Treaty of Amity with Iran, the optional protocol to the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations, both following the ICJ cases against the U.S. To start, how did these decisions about treaty withdrawals, whether or not to withdraw, typically get made in the U.S. government? And again, how would you say this differs, if at all, from the approach of the Trump administration versus the Obama administration? Sure. Well, to start, uh, I would say that we don't typically withdraw from treaties. So uh, at least in my experience, we didn't have a robust practice of considering withdrawal uh, and invoking treaty withdrawal mechanisms as an international law matter. Um, it's, it's really, I think, quite uh, astounding to see the number of of withdrawals that the Trump administration has engaged in compared to previous practice, uh, both of binding agreements as well as non-binding arrangements that are nonetheless uh, really important in key national security areas. The big one that comes to mind, of course, is the Iran nuclear deal or a joint comprehensive plan of action, which while not binding, of course, is an important multilateral arrangement that solves an important uh, national security issue. Um, so the treaty withdrawal process not being something we engaged in quite frequently, uh, we of course did engage quite often in dealing with compliance issues under various treaties. Uh, issues with the INF treaty, for example, began uh, before the Trump administration came into office. But in any treaty regime, uh, you know, you can have compliance issues that need to be worked through. And often we would um, bring together the lawyers group and work really closely with, with our our policy counterparts to figure out whether there are mechanisms within these treaty regimes that can be invoked to deal with compliance issues uh, in, in really um, rare instances, but on occasion to consider whether countermeasures should be used. Uh, and, and also to consider whether there are ways in which certain treaty regimes might need to be updated over time. Um. Tess, more generally, where do you think the United States stands today in terms of respect for the international rule of law, and where do you see us headed? Well, I, I think the, 
the vast majority of both the policymakers and the lawyers in the executive branch very much can still be counted on to uphold the rule of law and to uh, to respect our international commitments in uh, you know working with our international partners and in implementing uh, U.S. policy. Uh, but that said, of course, the the tone and the actions from the top matter tremendously. And I do think we have seen an erosion in respect for the rule of law on the domestic and on the international plane. Um, I wouldn't be the, the first and I won't be the last to suggest that this certainly has consequences in terms of the U.S.'s reliability as a partner. And to the extent we can't be seen as uh, upholding our commitments, uh, we we seem to be shying away from um, joining consensus, even with the G7, for example, uh, criticizing our, our NATO allies while holding close authoritarian regimes. Uh, you know, all of these both formal and subtle digs at international law and, in fact, the, the rule of law, I think, do have a cumulative effect over time. And there is a concern that even coming out of, of a Trump presidency, whether that's in, in two years or six, uh, it'll, it'll be difficult to prove to the world again that we can be a reliable partner. I think that's something that we need to start thinking about now uh, and something that Congress needs to be concerning itself with in conducting oversight uh, over the next few years of the Trump presidency. Tess, thanks so much for joining us. This episode of International Law Behind the Headlines has been brought to you by the American Society of International Law. To become a member, please visit ASIL.org. Thank you.